and it was hard to know what to do. The conflict of orders, the conflict between the patricians and the plebeians, was in full swing because of an economic recession, and Rome was always at war with one city or another. A pattern had emerged where the plebeians would agitate for more rights while a conflict was escalating, and the patricians would hold out thinking that they didn't have to give the plebeians all that they wanted. The conflict would start to get bad enough that the enemy would arrive at the gates, or it would look like a particularly bad loss was coming, or the Romans would suffer a particularly bad loss, and then the plebeians would rally, come together, form a fighting unit, attack the enemy, win, and return to their fields, usually without any of their hoped-for rights. Eventually, Rome found itself at war with the Vii, who were a local tribe they had fought on and off since their founding. To deal with the war, they appointed Marcus Furius Camillus to command. He started by storming the allies of the Vii, the Falerian and the Capena, and he looted their cities to great Roman acclaim. After a few more years and a series of defeats at the hand of other commanders, because Roman commanders were rotated through consular tribunes, and it was uncommon for any single person to maintain power in an unbroken string until Marius and then Sulla. Camillus was elected dictator for the first time. Camillus decided that it would be the end of the VI. He wasn't interested in terms of surrender, and he wasn't interested in negotiation. He was only interested in the VI's complete and total destruction. So he took the Helm's Deep approach and undermined their walls to infiltrate via the sewer. His force invaded and took the city with very little fighting. And once in there, they slaughtered every adult man. They took the women and children and slaves, and they depopulated the city so effectively that there was essentially an entirely open city that was full of wealth and could have housed many homeless urban Romans. Camillus returned to Rome as a glorious hero and one of the most important people in the city. But as always happens with Roman heroes, they will be raised up only to tear them down on their pretenses. In his massive triumph, he rode in a chariot that was pulled by four white horses. And that's sort of something that's considered super gauche, or the height of decadence, and the basest of egoist moves. Plutarch described it like this. Camillus assumed more to himself than became a civil and legal magistrate. Among other things, in the pride and haughtiness of his triumph, driving through Rome in a chariot drawn with four white horses, which no general either before or since ever did, for if the Romans considered such a mode of conveyance to be sacred, and especially set apart to the kings and father of the gods, this alienated the hearts of the fellow citizens, who were not accustomed to such pomp and display. This was only complicated by this new wrinkle that had occurred between the patricians and the plebeians. And this was VI, which now stood completely open with land and space and houses, for thousands of poor urban Romans. A lot of the plebeians wanted to move to VI and set up a new city as an ally of Rome, a new part of Rome, and Camillus opposed this. There's two main theories as to why. First, he probably didn't want the power of Rome to wane. You can say that you're setting up a city that's going to be an ally to Rome, but we saw with Alba Longa that eventually any close ally can become kind of a 
rival. And Rome subjugated Alba Longa during the reign of King Metius. Camillus had just spent a lot of effort and a great deal of blood to completely eliminate the VI. I'm not sure he wanted a new power so close to Rome that could eventually rise up and just be a second VI. The other possibility might be the plebeians. Now, Camillus was no friend of the plebeians. There's no stories of him being lifted up by the plebeians. And patrician plebeian lines are pretty firmly drawn in Rome, but a new city could decide to ignore a lot of that. Certainly, when Rome had been founded by Romulus, they hadn't taken any lines that had been drawn by Alba Longa. The patricians were the people who had come over and formed the honor guard for Romulus. A new city in VI would just be a new front for the plebeians to attack patrician rights and the idea of their sacredness. The public saw much more of the second than the first. Now, the first is kind of a hard one to understand, especially in the short run. And mixing this hardline anti-plebeian stance with his big, fancy, egoistical horse ride that he had just taken made him a pretty big target. Uh, people weren't super excited to see much good in him right then. And he'd been made a consular tribune once again to deal with the Faleri, who were the last holdout allies of the VI. But lucky for Camillus, they surrendered. And he was very gracious in their defeat. He was very merciful. But this mercy kind of backfired on him. The fact that the Faleri surrendered meant that there was no new treasure. And the treasure that was acquired from the VI was maybe not fully equitably distributed. Probably the city didn't get the full amount that it quote-unquote deserved. And so pretty quickly, his political enemies accused him of embezzling. And they had him impeached. He had the option to fight this, but kind of like Coriolanus, he didn't seem like he had that fight in him. That defense, that, that political... This is something you see a lot with military commanders. They're very good when they know exactly who the enemies are. But when you get into the political sphere where alliances can shift so fast, they really seem to be frustrated by it. Probably they fight for an idea of a perfect home, and then when they come home and that home that they fought for doesn't live up to the idea that they had, it's very difficult to square the two. So he was resigned to exile, and he and his family left for Ardia to make a new life. Now this might have been the end of Camillus. This might have been the last part of the story here if not for one of the most important events in ancient Rome. And that was a new threat that was on the border of the Italian peninsula. And at first it would be an enemy, and then the proving ground for Julius Caesar, until finally a full-blown province until the end of the Western Roman Empire in 800 years. And that was the Gauls. They had arrived on the Roman scene, and they were attacking Colusium, which is the Etruscan city that had once been led by Lars Porsena. The Etruscans reached out to Rome out of the hope that Rome could help them negotiate a peace. They weren't really able to fight at the same level as the Gauls. And so Rome sent over Quintus Fabius. And Quintus Fabius worked with the two sides, and it looked like there might be a peace as long as Colusium was willing to give up some land. 
But at the very last minute, peace talks broke down right at the very top level when everyone was in the same room and there was a fight, like a bar fight. And during this fight, Fabius killed one of the Gaelic chiefs, which violated ambassador neutrality and the Gauls now had a really big political question. They had to decide how to proceed. An ambassador sent by Rome had just violated an internationally recognized sanction. So they sent ambassadors to Rome to demand the three Fabii brothers. They wanted the whole family. And they wanted them to be handed over and executed. But the Fabians were an old patrician family. And the Senate wasn't really about to hand them over. In fact, that year, the people decided that they were so annoyed by the demands and they wound up electing the three Fabian brothers to consulships, which really meant that the stage was set for a fight between Rome and the Gauls. But the Gauls moved fast. They were nomadic, and it made it difficult for the Romans to fight them. The Romans didn't have time to make any special preparations. They only had a hastily put-together army. They assembled a number of Roman and allied people to combat the approaching Gauls, but they made very few defensive preparations in the city itself, and they marched their army out to the river of Alia to fight what is now an infamous fight. Now, the Romans were outnumbered, but how much they were outnumbered is a historical debate. Numbers are a constant question in history because quite often every side likes to exaggerate. You like to exaggerate if you lost because it shows how great a struggle you put up and still were defeated. You also like to exaggerate the other guy's numbers because if they look even more imposing, it was like your defeat was natural, but you still fought valiantly. You did the right thing even against impossible odds. And the winners of fights also like to exaggerate their own numbers because they like to make themselves look impossible to defeat and overwhelming and like anyone else who would stand up to them is just foolish. Like the next fight should also be easy because this fight was so predetermined. In this fight, estimates for Rome range from 12,000 to 40,000, with 40,000 being kind of unrealistic on every level. The Gauls were somewhere between 20,000 and 70,000. In both cases, the lower ends of the figure are much more likely. Uh, but almost certainly the Gauls outnumbered the Romans possibly around two to one. Now, because the Romans were outnumbered, they extended their wings. Uh, the, they extended the width of the Roman attacking force, which created a wider but a shallower force, which would really spell the end of the Romans. The Gauls pushed on the weakened left wing of the army and forced them into the river, and heavily armored soldiers don't do so well in water. So some of them drowned, and a lot of them fled, and the Gauls just chucked rocks and javelins at them, and they killed a bunch of them. But some of them escaped, and they fled to VI. Uh, most of Rome did not know that these people had escaped to VI, so this will be a, a bit of a problem for the people who aren't aware that there are some soldiers in VI. The Gauls pressed the right wing back, and the Romans started retreating and eventually fled back into the cities while the Gauls just decimated their lines. And now, I've said it before, but it's worth saying again, ancient battles were defined by retreats. 
the idea of organized retreats definitely didn't exist yet. And casualty figures of these ancient battles are often incredibly one-sided because almost everyone will die while running away. You will get these long fights where people are locked in and you have very low casualty levels until one side starts to sense that they're going to lose and they will just start backing away and fleeing and they will be completely decimated. And oftentimes, wars were only one fight. Rome sort of changed the paradigm by being able to field and military force after military force even after being defeated. We'll see that next episode when we go over some of the Samnite Wars. But it, it is a new thing that Rome is able to do. But right now, when they had this very hastily put together army, it didn't help them that much. Because the Gauls won this fight. They won the Battle of Aelia with very little effort and very few losses. And in fact, it was so easy that the Gauls thought it was a trick. They did not believe the success that they had had, and they were convinced it was some kind of trap. So they started marching to Rome and were really nervous of a surprise attack around some corner. They marched up to the city gates, and they found the city gates open. Now, this sounds like a trap. This sounds like a trap to me reading these texts two and a half thousand years later. But inside Rome, everyone was terrified. The Romans thought that every soldier that had survived the fight had made it back to the city. They didn't know about the soldiers in VI. They did not have a big army. They had retreated up into the Capitoline Hill and created a little fortress for themselves to defend against the Gauls. They had sent away the priests and the Vestal Virgins with all of the sacred objects from the city, all of the religious artifacts from them, so it was just healthy people defending the Capitoline Hill. And supposedly, the old and the infirm patricians, is according to Livy, but this seems unlikely, but who knows. Supposedly, the old and the infirm patricians and anyone who would be a burden on the defenders was left outside the citadel to the mercy of the Gauls. And there wasn't a lot of mercy to be had. Because when the sun rose the next day, the Gauls entered the city very cautiously, but they didn't encounter anyone. They were still kind of on edge at the possibility of a trap. So they moved through the city slowly, and they checked every corner. And when they came upon the city elders, those old and the infirm, who would be a burden to the defenders, they were enraptured by how stoic and stone-faced and impressive and eventually one Gaul walked up to one of these city elders and touched his beard just to see if it was not made of stone. And the elder was so furious that he whacked the Gaul on the head with his own staff, which was the signal to all Gauls to just start their murderous rampage. And they proceeded to burn and loot the city. Now there's conflicting reports of how badly the city was burned and how much was destroyed. Almost every ancient source talks about this being a devastating turning point in the lifetime of Rome, that this would be something along the likes of the sack that the Mongols did to Baghdad. But 
archaeological evidence doesn't really hold up to that. There don't seem to be a lot of great evidence of really widespread fires around 390. And Rome rebounded to fight a lot of battles almost immediately. Their bounce back from this was so quick. We've talked about this event, the sack of Rome in 390 before, because it's considered a historical turning point, that we don't have good sources before it, but we do after it. And that's kind of true. The, the truth about most of our sources is that there's just few of them no matter what. Livy's the big source for a lot of this stuff. Plutarch's another one. And all of these people live centuries after any of the events that we've talked about here. So whatever sources they're working from, you kind of have to question that. I don't know how you get there. Either way, Rome was now occupied and the city was being looted. But it was a very loose occupation. There were still a lot of Romans holed up in the fortress, and there were people who wanted to speak to those Romans. Eventually, a Roman from Vi managed to climb up the wall and speak with the remaining patricians. Now, he wanted to talk to them about our hero, Marcus Furius Camillus, because he was making waves again. This was because one of the outlying Gaelic tribes had brushed up against Ardia, right where Marcus Furius Camillus was in exile. And Camillus, not about to let Rome fall to this new enemy, raised up a fighting force and snuck into this Gaelic camp at night so that he could massacre the whole lot of them. He went to Vi and began taking up command of the armies there in order to lead a counterattack. Now, when this Roman soldier went up to the Senate and the patricians and they heard all of this, they immediately decreed that Camillus should have his banishment revoked and he should be made dictator. This move came just in time. The Gauls were working hard to starve the Romans out. They had seen the messenger who scaled the wall in order to get word to the Senate, and they saw how it could be done. So they started sending people of their own up there. So some of the Gauls started creeping up the wall in order to catch the Romans by surprise. It was early in the morning, so none of the Romans were watching. None of the animals had woken up. No dogs were barking. No roosters were crowing. But lucky for the Romans, the geese caught sight of them. These golden geese, which started squawking as loud as they could and woke up the Romans so that they could repel the scaling Gaelic invaders. This is one of those legends that will go down in Roman history. But famine was setting in, and Romans were beginning to succumb to it. The Gauls kind of implied that they could be bought off, and the Romans knew that Camillus might not arrive on time, so they agreed. The Gauls set the ransom at 1,000 pounds of gold, and the Romans, who I guess hadn't sent all of their gold away, dragged the 1,000 pounds out and began to put it on the scales but they realized that the Gauls were using weighted scales. It used to be that you would measure by having scales out, and one side had a standard set of weights that said one pound or 100 pounds or whatever, and you would place up enough on the other side until it balanced. And the Gauls had some phony weights that said 100 pounds but actually weighed 120 pounds or something. And the Romans were furious. They couldn't believe the, the treachery that was being pulled by these down-dirty Gauls. And the Gaelic leader said, Woe to the vanquished! And he threw his own sword straight down on the weights, which added to the amount that the Romans had to pay. 
Now, right here, a couple of different things might have happened. It is likely, or as likely as we can say when we're sort of unsure about everything that's going on here, that the Gauls were paid, they took their money, and they left the city peacefully. And they didn't trouble the Romans again. But there is a pretty big legend involving Camillus, who arrives right after that Gaul throws his sword on the weights. And Camillus says, Not with gold, but with iron shall the fatherland be regained. And he attacked the Gauls and routed them and completely destroyed the remnants of their army that lived in the city. And for his last-minute arrival, the Romans would dump him the second Romulus, and they'd praise him as the second founder of Rome. In general, this myth is viewed as a Roman reconstruction after the fact, a bit of a lie so that Roman pride can be saved. It feels a little too unlikely, all told. Now, I think we really need to look at this sack of the city. It is often referred to as a turning point in Rome, kind of an end of the second act, all is lost moment. For the Romans, where so much of the city was burned and so many important senators and so many important fighting men lost their lives, that Rome was at an all-time ebb. But I mentioned this earlier, there's not a lot of archaeological evidence for widespread fire. And Rome took almost no time to be back at full strength. They were under attack by other peoples almost immediately, and they don't seem to have lost any of their fighting ability. So Livy will mention the widespread destruction of the city, and in almost the same breath, say that Rome was back in action after a year of rebuilding. I just find it unlikely that it would only take a year to completely rebuild after such a cataclysmic event. But that's how the story goes. Rome was rebuilt, and while they were rebuilding, the Volsci and the Aquii invaded. Camillus was made dictator again to deal with the problem, and he would handle it deftly and earn himself another triumph. He was never absolute in his power. He would go on to be elected dictator three more times, and on one of them, he even tried to trick the plebeians out of their goal of having one of the councils next year elected as a plebeian. But that would aggravate the plebeians so much that they would try and punish him until he resigned his office. The later episodes of his life definitely point to an exhaustion with politics and with the demands for office, because he mentions multiple times how he would just like to be done with all of this forever, sort of like George Washington exiting after his second term. He died only a couple years after that incident involving the plebeians. And according to Livy, all of Rome mourned his loss as the second founder. Well, thank you very much, and I hope each of you gets to make some history today.